everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. The chaos and the division of the last several years have tested our country and our democracy in new and frightening ways that I don't think any of us might have anticipated just a few years ago. Many of us fear that Americans are failing these tests. How can we, a country of more than 300 million people, exist together when our politics and our cultural norms are so torn apart and so torn apart by so many different things? How can we even talk to one another when tens of millions of Americans don't believe what is objectively true? when they reject science, when they reject our democratic system, and when they deny the basic humanity of oppressed people here in America. I have to say, it's hard to be optimistic as an American in 2021. There are lots of reasons to doubt, to doubt the future of this country, to doubt the future of us being able to be a pluralistic America, which we are becoming, but we're having a really hard time adapting to that pluralism and what it means, how it changes our notions of fairness, equality, justice. But my next guest is trying to pull us back a bit from all of that despair and that cynicism. Reverend Adam Russell Taylor is the new president of Sojourners, and he's the author of a new book that lays out a vision for an America that can exist together, and even further, an America that can bring about a new era of cooperation and justice for people who have long been denied equality and basic dignity. That's the conversation we're going to have here today on Detroit Today, and here to talk about his book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community, is Reverend Adam Russell Taylor. Adam, welcome to Detroit Today. It's an honor to be with you. So I want to start, actually, with a discussion about Sojourners. This is an organization that we're pretty familiar with here at Detroit Today. It was led for many, many years by Jim Wallace, a very close friend of the show, You are the new leader of Sojourners, but for listeners who don't know much about what that is, talk about what the organization does, where it comes from, and where you see yourself leading it. Great question. So Sojourners is about to turn, well, actually, we are turning 50 years old this year, so celebrating a pretty big birthday. And the organization really was founded by Jim Wallace and a group of seminary students who were attending Trinity Seminary in Chicago at the time. And because of their faith convictions, started to protest and get other students involved in protesting the Vietnam War. It was a very popular decision at Trinity Seminary, and they kind of got kicked out as a result. And so they created a magazine that was initially called The Post-American. And then a couple years later, they renamed it to Sojourners, and kind of sojourn to Washington, D.C., to the Columbia Heights neighborhood here in the city. 
and started an intentional community that continued to engage in kind of Christian activism and witness around issues of peace and justice. So that's a little bit of our history. We have evolved into you know, one of the largest progressive-leading ecumenical Christian organizations that still produces a magazine. We also have a digital publication at sojo.net that creates all kinds of content at the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. And increasingly, and this is kind of my vision for the future, we are trying to equip and mobilize Christians and other people of faith and conscience to put their faith into action to help advance a radically more just country and world. And we've got campaigns focused on immigrant rights and immigration. We have campaigns focused on our criminal justice system and policing. We work on women and girls issues, climate justice, poverty. So quite a bit of kind of advocacy work is now a major part of our mission. So just listening to you describe that work, the the image that comes to my mind is a community organization from maybe the 1960s, right? There were lots of organizations like that back then doing that kind of work. I feel like there are fewer points in our culture now where that work is the focus. Uh, Tell me why in 2021 Sojourners still feels like that's the work to be done. And tell me how different it looks today than it might have 50-some years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some threads that certainly are similar. I think there's still a real battle that's going on in the part of the church around whether, you know, the Christian faith is primarily about a kind of privatized personal relationship with Jesus, or does that relationship call us into the world to help advance God's kingdom here on earth, to advance justice and peace here in this country, in our communities, and around the world. And so that, that's kind of, kind of been an ongoing part of the soldier's mission to try to convince the church that to really be the church, we have to be enlisted in God's purposes in the world, which includes a major prioritization of justice. I think, you know, in some ways, we, we desperately need more churches to be politically active and engaged. And, and there's, there's kind of negative... And, and kind of destructive ways to do that. And I think the religious right as a movement has largely done it the wrong way. And then there's much more faithful ways of doing it that really understands that a key part of discipleship is civic engagement, particularly uh, around issues that impact the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society. And so we really have argued that is a core part of what it means to live out your faith And now I think it's increasingly imperative that we train and equip people on how to do that. And we try to work with churches to create more civil, you know, space for civil dialogue about the very issues that are impacting our country. And then ultimately to use their voices in ways that can help change and even transform our broken politics. So let's talk about this book that you've written, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved community, you start that book with a story about what inspired you to write the book. You write about the night of the 2016 election, which was a pivotal night for, I think, many families of color in this country. And you write about your young son's reaction to the results. Tell our listeners that story and talk about what that episode meant for you. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, 
that night and the morning after is probably a night and morning many of us would like to forget. <laughs> in this case, my older son, Joshua, who was five years old at the time, came into our room at 3 a.m. And, you know, we were at a very restless sleep, restless sleep, so we hadn't slept much. But my, my son comes in and he had this distraught look on his face. And he's like, mommy and daddy, I really need to know who won the election. You know, we try to shield him from the election, which is kind of an impossible thing to do in Washington, D.C. in particular. But we didn't realize how much he'd internalized. And so, you know, we kind of tried to respond and said, we think Mr. Trump won. And he said, I don't understand how someone who has said and done such mean things could win. And, you know, I'm, in addition to being president of Sojourners, I'm also ordained Baptist preacher. And so I'm rarely speechless, but I just was so speechless in that moment because I didn't know how to explain to him how this happened. And it wasn't because a conservative one or a Republican one per se, it was really because our nation had elected someone that I really considered to be amoral, to be the kind of antithesis of the Beatitudes and so much of the message of Jesus, let alone someone who really stoked and appealed to a lot of the worst impulses and vices in our culture, in our history, including racism and xenophobia and misogyny. And so, you know, then my, my son saw our, our distraught anguished look and he was like, don't worry, don't worry it's going to be okay because you and mommy are going to make it okay. Mm. And in that moment, I knew that I couldn't stay faithful to my sense of calling and remain in my, the job that I was in. I was working at the world bank. I was doing very meaningful work. It was very well paid. And I'd already started some conversations with Jim about coming back to Sojourners at some point. He had already shared with me. He saw me as his natural successor, which was really humbling, but I really had to be clear in my own spirit that that's what I felt called to do and in that moment, it just became really crystal clear that our democracy was at stake and kind of the soul of our country was at stake. And I felt the witness of the church was at stake, particularly given, you know, the 80 plus percent of white evangelicals that have voted for Trump. And so I uh, ended up leaving the World Bank and came back to Sojourners as the executive director. And then Jim and I started this you know, transition together. And this last November, I became president of Sojourners. And so you know, this story definitely prompted me to write the book in part because I wanted to understand and to, to kind of communicate what kind of moral vision, what meta-narrative could be more unifying and powerful to essentially counteract the very ahistorical and also I would say dystopian and kind of dog whistle narrative of Make America Great Again which is very effective and I think is what's part, part of what propelled Trump into office. But, but again, you know, for so many people of color and for others, it really was this kind of dog whistle of trying to hold on to white supremacy in many ways and kind of make America white again, let alone, you know, kind of ignoring so many aspects of our history that we really haven't reckoned with as a country. So the book is an attempt to both cast a new moral vision or at least Re recast an old moral vision of the beloved community, which is the vision that animated the civil rights movement, but to cast it in more contemporary terms, to reimagine it for our current moment. And I make the argument that the, the, the vision of the beloved community has the potential and power to unite the vast majority of Americans across generational lines, religious lines, racial lines, and beyond. And I think it's a, it's a redemptive vision. It's one that can really help to redeem the soul of our country. So happy to share more about kind of what I mean by the beloved community, but that was the, 
the main thrust of, of why I wrote the book. Yes, I, I absolutely want to get to some discussion of that phrase. I, I really like that phrase. I find it very inspiring and, and hopeful. But I but I'm, I'm going to want you to explain more about uh, about what you mean by that. Uh, but before we get to that, I, I want you to talk just a little about uh, you say that you and your wife had a fight about whether or not to move to Canada or Jamaica, where she has citizenship. Um, <laughs> that was how fearful you were about raising black sons in America in post-2016 America. Exactly right. Um, so just a little bit about my background, which is also important in terms of the book and why I wrote it. So I come from a biracial background. My parents made the controversial decision to get married in 1968. My mother's black and my father's white. And just a year after, through the Loving versus the state of Virginia Supreme Court case, interracial marriage was legalized across the country. And they instilled in me this deep and abiding belief that one, my generation, Generation X, inherited the unfinished business of the civil rights struggle. And I very much internalized that as, as I was growing up. And secondly, that my own diversity as a biracial black man, but in a larger sense, our nation's diversity as a nation of immigrants, as a nation of people from very different backgrounds was a gift and not a liability. It was a strength and not a weakness. And I think one of the underlying fault lines in the 2016 election, and you can even argue in the 2020 election, was a growing recognition that our country, as you said at the outset, is increasingly becoming a nation in which, over time, white Americans will be in the minority. It's by roughly 2043. Mm -hmm. And that statistic started to get much more publicized just before the 2016 election. And so I don't think it was coincidental that you know, Trump was effective in stoking a lot of fear and trepidation and angst around that changing reality rather than the kind of hope and excitement <laughs> that I think it should generate, right? Because I think it's, again, a reflection of the, the strength of America. So part of the message of the book as well is really trying to make this argument and paint a picture of how a healthy, more just, multiracial democracy is actually a country where everyone would be enabled to thrive. And it's a country that is much more aligned with our deepest civic and religious values. Hmm. I want to uh, give you a chance to now talk about this beloved community that you reference in the book title. What do you mean by that? And what would that look like if we were able to attain it? Yeah, well, I certainly have to give you know, a lot of credit and honor to Josiah Royce, who actually kind of coined the term the beloved community. He mm -hmm. founded the Fellowship of Reconciliation. King was a member of that fellowship and was inspired by Royce in some ways. Uh, King was heavily influenced by Howard Thurman, who's been a big inspiration in my life, a kind of great mystic and theologian. King talked about the beloved community as really the, the North Star of the Civil Rights Movement. Af after the Montgomery bus boycott victory, he made a speech and he said that the ultimate goal is redemption. The ultimate goal is reconciliation. The ultimate goal of the movement essentially was the creation or the building of the beloved community. And so for King, it certainly was a nation, a community that was defined by equality and a commitment to nonviolence, a commitment to agape love. Building on that, kind of my 
more contemporary remix, if you will, <laughs> of the beloved community is creating a society, creating a nation in which everyone is valued and respected, where everyone has a voice and where everyone is enabled to thrive, to, to realize their God-given potential. And then I have kind of a, a more policy-oriented definition, which is to create a society, build a society in which neither punishment nor privilege is viciously tied to race, to ethnicity, to gender, to ableness, to sexual orientation, you know, many of the things that define us. And I know that that's a very high bar in some ways, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I think it's actually a, a kind of bar that we should be measuring all of our political decisions and public policies around. And it's a bar that I would argue is ingrained in the constitution of this country. And it's ingrained in our religious texts and our religious commitments, not just in Christianity, but also in Judaism and in Islam, and in Islam and other religions as well. And so that's kind of at the heart of it. And I, I then kind of unpack what it would look like to help achieve the beloved community. And particularly in the third part of the book, I lay out what I call the beatitudes of the beloved community. So these are the core commitments that we need to make together in order to help achieve the beloved community. And they include things like a commitment to a Mago Dei equality. So going beyond just kind of a country of equal opportunity we want to create a country where we literally are able to see the humanity and even the divinity in every other person and really want to affirm and protect that humanity and divinity. We need a commitment to nonviolence. I talked about what does it look like to prioritize nonviolence right now? Talk about a commitment to radical welcome, which I think we desperately need in order to transform our severely broken immigration system. I write about a commitment to Ubuntu interdependence which is kind of a deeper understanding of the golden rule that I learned when I had a chance to study abroad in South Africa in 1996. And really, you know, Ubuntu can be summarized as I am because we are using the words of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Mm. And I think that kind of commitment is the antidote we need to this kind of selfish individualism that I think has really poisoned our culture in a lot of ways. And then finally, I talk about a commitment, well, actually two more. One is a commitment to environmental stewardship, which is desperately needed as we face a mounting climate crisis. And the last one is a commitment to dignity for all. Dignity literally dignitas, or dig, dignas, the Latin word means worthiness, that we all have inherent worthiness and that dignity is really at the heart of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's the heart of this global agenda called the Sustainable Development Goals and really should be at the heart of so much of what should characterize U.S. leadership in the world. Hmm. I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to continue this really wonderful conversation with Reverend Adam Taylor, the new leader of Sojourners and author of the new book, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. I want to hear from you as well. Uh, give us a call. Tell us whether you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic about current America and the future America. Do you agree that there's a path toward living together again in a sustainable way while also tackling systems of oppression that exist in our society? Or do you think America is just broken and we have to somehow just reset and start over, perhaps in separate ways given the inability of our culture to come together 
around the pluralism and the change that we're all experiencing. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Reverend Adam Taylor. He is the president of Sojourners and the author of a new book, A More Perfect Union, a new vision for building the beloved community. We're talking about both despair, the despair that I think many of us feel about our country, about our culture right now, given the things that have happened, particularly over the last five or six years. But we're also talking about hope, the opportunity to capitalize on this moment and push America toward a better space, a more cooperative space, a more just space, a more equal space, a more pluralistic space, a space that is quicker to recognize the pluralism that we enjoy as a plus here in America. We want to hear from you as well. What do you think about this moment in America? Are you optimistic about it or are you pessimistic about it? Do you believe that there is a path toward us living together in a sustainable way again? Is there a way to tackle systems of uh, systemic inequality that exist in our society and have existed since the beginning? Or do you think that all of the things that we're seeing happen around us are reminders that America's just broken and that in order to move forward, we might have to move apart? Also, give us a call and let us know how you act on whatever your feelings are. What are you doing in your local community to try to make things better? If you're pessimistic or optimistic, I think the real question is, how do you put that into action? How do you make sure that things that you can control are moving toward more inclusion, more equality, more justice. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Let's start with Teresa in Beverly Hills. Teresa, what's on your mind? I'm Teresa. Hi. 
Go ahead, Teresa. You... Hi. Um, I'm, you know, I'm calling because I want to thank you for giving a voice to people who feel that, you know, we've been stuck in our house for an, a year and a half working from home, and we've heard a lot of pessimistic things come through media. I am basically optimistic to answer your question. I feel that our society is getting better because um, people are starting to think about how the other people are feeling. And so uh, through education, we can level the, we, we need to level our society out into a more equitable, equitable society. And we need to uh, do that through education. I mean, we've been all been shocked this year, storming the Capitol, um, planning to, uh, you know, attack the governor. I mean, really, you feel that bad? Mm. So I really feel that, uh, you know, I'm a teacher, and I feel that it's really important we all try to listen. And I, I'm optimistic about our future because it's, it's making us all shocked and listening. Mm. So uh, even though I condone violence and I hope these um I hope there's a more communicative way to express our feelings instead of just being on one side of the aisle or the other side. Yeah. Uh Teresa, I really appreciate the call and the very thoughtful perspective. Uh, Reverend Taylor, I'll give you a chance to respond to what Teresa's saying. She she's optimistic about our opportunities. Is she right? Yeah, thank you, Teresa. I appreciate your optimism. And, you know, as a kind of reverend of the gospel, I feel like optimism and hope are kind of in the job description. So I, I definitely share a lot of it. I think that there we are in a perilous moment in the context of our democracy. And I'm hopeful because I actually see a growing movement that is mobilizing and organizing to try to heal our democracy, to save it in some ways. But I wouldn't underestimate the threat that still exists, you know, in part, you know, that showed its ugly face on January 6th when white nationalists stormed the Capitol and tried to overturn an election result. But in a, in a bigger sense, the degree to which, unfortunately, many parts of the GOP have doubled down on the big lie that this last election was stolen, very much kind of appeasing Trump and former President Trump. And we now are seeing 400 bills that have been proposed in 48 states that would make it harder for certain communities to vote, either by doing purges of voting rolls, ending early voting, reducing the number of voting sites in particularly black communities, in some cases uh, restricting vote by mail, which was shown to be very successful and effective in the last election. And to make matters worse, there's a lot of states, including in Michigan, where there are efforts underway to try to enable state legislators to overturn election results, which I think would be a disaster for our democracy. So I'm kind of painting that picture a little bit to say this is a moment where we all need to use our voices to literally protect the right to vote, which I would argue is a sacred right, both you know, from a constitutional perspective, but also from a religious perspective. And we can do that by helping to pass a bill that is actually named after Congressman John Lewis, who I'm extremely humbled, wrote the prologue to my book before he went on to glory. 
So the, the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act, which would help re-strengthen the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and kind of give it teeth again. And then another bill called the Freedom to Vote Act, which would help to prevent some of the, many of these bills from going into effect around the country and would help to end gerrymandered districting and do a number of other things that would really help strengthen our democracy. Mm -hmm. And so Sojourners is working with the National African American Clergy Network and a number of other organizations to really mount the strongest movement we can to try to get these bills passed. Because again, so much is at stake in the context of our, our democracy. Yeah, yeah. Again, Teresa, I really appreciate the, the call and the really thoughtful perspective. Okay, let's go to Chris in Detroit. Chris, what's on your mind? Hi, good morning. Hi. So, so a country that's ever been based off religion has always felt, even though I do believe in what, everything that your, 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 um, your guest is saying, many countries that have ever been based in, in faith has always felt, because with faith, you've always, you always have had a classism system. So when we're talking about so we're only only if we're talking about the British monarch the British monarch is only one of the few countries that does not have a faith that's succeeded more than three thousand years. Hmm. Uh, Chris, uh, that's a really that's a really fascinating point to make, and and I want to get our guest to to respond to it, uh, Reverend Taylor. I, I think there's an important distinction between the idea of a country of a faith and a country of faith. And I, I imagine that that's the distinction that, that, that you would draw between what you're talking about and I, I guess what Chris fears. Yeah, no, thanks, Chris. I appreciate the question. So let me tease out a couple of things. There's actually a chapter in my book that focuses on debunking many of the myths that America was founded on. So there's a lot of myths that literally have shaped our national consciousness and psyche. And one is the myth that we were a chosen nation. This kind of feeds into American exceptionalism. There's a myth that we're an innocent nation, that we can do no wrong. And there's a myth that we are a Christian nation. The founders, many of them were deists, including Thomas Jefferson. And most of them believe strongly in the separation of church and state and wanted to create a nation that was pluralistic in terms of its embrace of many different religions and giving people the freedom to choose to practice religion or not. Um, and so, one, I just think we have to you know, be accurate and truthful historically about the fact that we were never founded as a Christian nation, even if Christian values did shape the, the, the nation at its founding. The second point is that the beloved community vision is not a purely religious one. This is one of the reasons why I think it could be so unifying and powerful. It is a vision that is also very humanistic. It's a vision that I think it could appeal to many people who are atheists or people who are spiritual but not religious because it ties into some core values that I would argue are very much human values. They're values that are also tied into the best of our constitutional values, commitments to equality and to human dignity, et cetera. And so, you know, while I may speak about the beloved community from my Christian vantage point. I also in the book describe how the beloved community is also a vision that resonates deeply with all these kind of other perspectives. And, you know, one of the things that King did so brilliantly is he was unapologetic about his Christian faith and kind of speaking from his Christian faith, but he always kind of held up the constitution when in his other hand, and he spoke to and helped to ignite a movement 
that attracted and inspired people of many faiths and no faith at all. And I think that's what we have to do in the context of the beloved community itself. And there is still, as Chris, I think, intoned, this hesitation about the power of religion in in our culture. And there is a tension, I think, that, that plays out all the time uh, when when I think Americans feel as though they are being coerced, perhaps, by religious belief rather than political ideology. And it's really difficult still, I think, to, to sort of suss that out and, and to recognize that the power of faith itself is not a threat to democratic values. Yeah, and, and that threat is real. I mean, I think we, again, have to be clear and real that religion has been used, including Christianity, for all kinds of very harmful purposes. It's been, I would say, it's been misused and abused. It was used to justify the institution of slavery, to kind of sanctify it during large parts of our history. It was used to justify Jim Crow segregation and so much more, um, the oppression of women, et cetera. So I think we have to be clear about that. But at the same time, you know, I think I wouldn't want to see us completely remove religious belief and conviction from the public square. Uh, Dr. King said that the church at its best is called to be the conscience of the state, not the master or the servant of the state. And I think where we get into danger is when religious people, whether Christian or Jewish or otherwise, kind of try to impose their religious beliefs on the rest of the country rather than trying to persuade the rest of the country that you know, what their religious beliefs are compelling them to think and do is actually good for the rest of the country. We don't get to win the argument just because a particular text tells us to do something. We ultimately have to go into you know, this pluralistic democracy and make the case for why that's good for the common good or a good society or these kind of larger concepts that are, are not you know, limited to, to religious concepts. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about despair and hope and faith with Reverend Adam Taylor. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and social media. Sean in River Rouge, Mary Ellen in Warren, we'll hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us whether you are hopeful or pessimistic about the future here in America. Tell us what you make of all of the tensions that we see cropping up around us and perhaps the opportunity to move to a better space, a better, more just America. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 101.9 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. Uh, my guest this hour is Reverend Adam Taylor. He is the new president of Sojourners and the author of a new book, A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. We're talking about despair and hope and the two sides of 
life in America right now. The two things that I think pull at each of us as we see the tensions of uh, our history, of our present, uh, of the unfulfilled promise of America play out in front of us day after day. The question for you, the listeners, is how are you feeling in this moment? Uh, Are you feeling as though there is a path toward us living together again in a sustainable way? What do you think about a pluralistic America that's centered on the idea of equality and justice? Is that possible? Or is this country just broken? And do you feel like perhaps it needs to reorganize and reconvene, maybe in some separate ways, uh, to account for all of the differences that we have with each other? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to include you that way. Let's go to Sean in River Rouge. Sean, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Um, I was calling to say two points. Uh, first, we have to remember that this country is still a baby, so that we're going to war and pain right now. Um, that being said, I am hopeful about the future. Um, I deal with the youth a lot and the way they think about and are aware of what's going on and how they make a conscious effort to make this country more equitable. It gives me hope every time I talk to them again. Hmm. Um, and I'm saying that as a gay black man who grew up in Detroit. Hmm. So, uh, Sean, I really appreciate the call and and the perspective. Before we get back to our guest, I, I want to ask you about the the two of two of the controversies that are going on right now in the news. One. Uh, Dave Chappelle, the comedian, the African-American comedian who's in a little bit of hot water for the ways in which uh, he has uh, used gay and trans issues in in some recent jokes. Uh, And and also John Gruden, a, a longtime NFL coach who's resigned in part because of things he said that were homophobic. I, I feel like both of those, both of those news items are things that look really different today than they would have even five years ago in terms of how they're playing out. I wonder for you whether that's part of, part of your optimism. It is. Um, uh, I am very thankful for the, um, the engagement that it has brought because in previous years, it would have been swept in a rubber. It would have just been a joke that I laughed at. I even go back as far as, as to look at things that I've watched when I was a child, like the show Girlfriend and stuff like that, and the way they represented trans people. And I think about it now, and I'm like, that would be so problematic today. So mm-hmm. I think it's very good that now we're getting to a place where we're realizing that these are people who everyone has deserves to be represented and has the right to feel how they feel and express that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so it does. It gives me hope. Yeah. Uh, Sean, really appreciate the call and the thoughts. Uh, Reverend Taylor, respond to what Sean's talking about. Yeah, thanks, Sean. I, I really think that's an important and brilliant point about us being a young nation, a baby nation even. You know, we are a nation that's roughly 244 years old. And I would argue that in the context of being 
a nation that is more fully kind of embraced being a multiracial democracy, we're not even, we're, we're barely over 50 years old. I mean, prior to 1965 and the passage of the Voting Rights Act, voting was highly contested and was restricted. You know, we were founded as a nation that limited voting to only white property-owning men. That Literally, at that time, was about 10% of the population could actually vote. So the we the people was confined to white property-owning white males. And obviously, there's been lots of struggles that have helped to expand that we, to expand the right to vote, to include women, and then ultimately to African-Americans and the whole population. And so I'm just kind of reinforcing that history to make the case that, you know, 50 plus years is not very long for us to be trying to become a more perfect union or enable a more perfect human union to be realized. And that it does take ongoing struggle. I'm also, you know, encouraged by some of the backlash against Dave Chappelle's show. I haven't had a chance to, to watch it. I'm actually planning not to watch it based on what I've heard, mm. um, as well as, you know, the the pressure for John, John Gruden to to step down. That those are those are encouraging things. I think with that, we also really need to continue to push to ensure that the systemic nature of so much injustice, racial injustice, uh, transphobia, and homophobia, also has to be rooted out. You know, King understood that no amount of purely goodwill or charity was going to end the Jim Crow system. It literally had to be changed by policies and laws. And I think that's a similar commitment we have to make today in the context, context of addressing so much of the systemic nature of racial injustice uh, that continues to haunt our nation. Mm-hmm. Let's next go to Fultana in West Bloomfield. Fultana, welcome to the show. Hi, good afternoon. Good morning. I would uh-huh. just like to say I love your show. I listen to it every morning. Oh, thank you. And I'm a supporter of public uh, of this station as well. Um, I'm going to say this. I don't believe that we will ever reach that level, and I will tell you why. It has been so much embedded, so systematic, uh, that has gone on for African Americans, for indigenous people. Um, opportunities have been stripped. Property has been stripped. Monies have been lost through, through the slaves. Nobody feels an African well, people do, but nobody feels that there should be reparation. And when you people talk about the stimulus, okay, that just touched the surface. That just helped people pay the first, second, third month's rent. Hmm. But educationally, you know, when you try, it's just too much that has been done. And and what we need, the conversation needs to be wrapped around, how do we help systematic years? We're talking about 400 years, and we have just, just discovered so much even myself as an African-American woman, because of Black Lives Matter, I discovered so much that even had been done. So I just don't, I mean, I think that you have to, you know, at some point say, this is my American dream. I have a job. I have a career. I can pay my rent. I can pay my mortgage. I can pay my car note. I can send my kids to school. I mean, but, and some people just like, those are things, the basic things that we need are out of reach. And you don't really see it until you're in the trenches, until you're amongst people, opportunities. I remember one year when I was out of a position, and I had four degrees. I was out of a job. I went to almost 20, and I'm not exaggerating. I can name them, but I'm not going to do that on the radio. I went to 20 job interviews, white, all white districts. Now, keep in mind, 
I don't have a felony. I have credentials from Wayne State University. Do you know I did not get one position? They mm-hmm. kept saying, you're not a right fit, or you're not this. I mean, even on one interview, they asked me, well, well, what books do you read? And I took off and told them at least five or six books. So you think of a person like that who has degrees in education and still didn't get it. And you're going to tell me that racism didn't have anything to do with that? So how do you get over? That's what I'm saying. That's why I don't think we'll ever achieve that. Wow. Fultana, I really appreciate your call and and your sharing that experience with our listeners and, and with our guest. I think... Look, African-Americans, we, we experience that kind of frustration all the time. And as you point out, it is baked into the DNA of this country. Reverend Taylor, what are we to make of that? What are we to do about it 243 or four years into the American experiment? And I really appreciate that question. And I mean, I, I would say two things. One is that you know, if you look at the cover of my book, you know, it says a more perfect union and the more is in blue and the other letters are in white. And that's intentional because I really wanted to emphasize the more. We are a nation that is and should be constantly striving toward a more perfect union. But a more perfect union can't be this kind of perfectionism, which will never really exist, in part because the consequences of our history continue to show up in the present, as as she just rightly pointed out. And so... You know, I think we have to keep pushing and keep working toward living into our, our ideals of liberty and justice for all, but also recognize that, you know, so much damage has been done. We have to do some serious repair work. And for me, repair requires a combination of things. It requires truth telling. You can't really know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And as James Baldwin famously said, those who fail to acknowledge their history remain captive to it. So we got to do a lot more truth-telling about our history. Secondly, we have to do some repentance for that history. And that also has been a real struggle within our country and remains to be one. And then third, we do have to make some amends. And I do believe there's a very compelling and critical case to be made for reparations. There's actually one of the chapters in my book entitled E Pluribus Unum, Out of Many One. I really lay out a case for what reparations could look like. And, and in my mind, at least, a form of reparations, which would have a more lasting impact, is you know, kind of a little bit different or more than simply trying to calculate what kind of check could be written to every descendant of, of slaves, but more so looking at how do we you know, essentially restructure our economy so that people of African descent and descendants of slaves can really be able to realize their full potential and be able to overcome so many of the barriers and obstacles that continue to be thrown in our path. So that can include everything from giving every black child a savings bond when they're born. That can include giving black families a you know, down payment for a new home or significant housing subsidies. There's lots of public policies that I actually think would have a pretty significant ripple effect that, you know, really are, are, are important for at least consideration, let alone for, for action. Hmm. And, uh, you know, as Fultana points out, that's not an easy conversation to have because there is still a lot of pushback, There's still a lot of resentment of the very idea of recompense, for instance, f- for African-Americans. 
are you optimistic or more optimistic than she is that we can move that conversation forward? No, I'm, I guess, I'm, maybe I'm a little more optimistic, but I think she's giving a, an important dose of, of reality that, you know, there are a lot of Americans, particularly white Americans, that would prefer to be in denial, would prefer to take responsibility for some of that history, or to even see that by making amends, we could actually, you know, create a more perfect union. It, it's an essential part of how we get there. Um, you know, one of the things that has to be a part of this, and I know I mentioned this before, but just to emphasize it, is that, you know, there's such a lack of knowledge about our history. I have a whole chapter in the book called, and the whole truth will set you free, kind of building on the words of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I make the case that we have gone backwards in our civics education. You know, we now have 12 states around the country that are literally, have literally passed bills that are banning teachers from teaching about slavery and teaching about racism. And, you know, conservatives are using this boogeyman of critical race theory as a way to drum up a lot of moral panic when their real attempt is to try to suppress and whitewash our history because they don't want to take responsibility for the consequences of some of that history. And so, you know, part of what needs to happen is we need to better educate white Americans that they have been the beneficiaries of essentially white affirmative action for not just, you know, the kind of you know, role that slavery played in our history, but more recently, the fact that, you know, African Americans were denied the benefits of the GI Bill, including those who served in the military, that redlining still happens and has, you know, denied opportunities to black families for many generations. We can point to so many examples where in recent times, uh, uh, white Americans have benefited from the ways in which racism is baked into our laws and our mm -hmm. public policies. And that kind of consciousness just needs to be increased um, in order to, for us to be able to open up, I think a healthier conversation about what amends and repair looks like for the heinous system of slavery and Jim Crow segregation that followed it. Okay. Reverend Adam Taylor, author of A More Perfect Union, uh, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community, and president of Sojourners. It was really wonderful to have you here with us uh, for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow joins the program, and we'll talk with two experts on gerrymandering about the Michigan Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission and the work that it has done so far redrawing our political maps. There is a lot of angst and anger being expressed at that work. We're going to try to help explain what they're up to and why it might be better. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station.